0: Jordan is on best. Harper's on The team no, it, it. Here's a long three by all. Holiday. back. He's back. He's back. Holliday, to back. He's back. He's three. Welcome to another edition of the Indy Corners podcast. I am your host, Mark Schindler, joined today by my colleague over at Indy Cornrows, Caitlin Cooper. If you have not already, please be sure to go read her her article that she just dropped today about the defense and and how the, the Pacers and their roster as set can kind of uh, implement some of the uh, defensive approaches of the Raptors and what that might look like. Caitlin, how are you doing today?
1: Doing pretty well. Um, before we get started, I just wanted to point out that tomorrow is the last day that you can vote. It's election day. And I mean, I'm sure you're not going to either. Neither one of us are going to tell anybody who to vote for. But I will say that if you head over, if you're in Indiana and you need to know where your polling location is or how to get a ride to a poll or that how you can still get an ID if you don't have one because you have to have an ID in order to vote in Indiana or stuff about provisional ballots that Allison Carter over at the Indy Star has a lot of good information there, just so that you still have the opportunity. I mean, this is a major election. Obviously, the president is at stake and lots of other stuff in our state locally is at stake. And if you're not in Indiana, then you can go and look at um, when we all and you can still find your polling location throughout the United States. So
0: I don't yes. know if you have
1: anything you want to add to that.
0: Oh, yeah. The only thing I would add um, is, you know, I, I had Dave Searle on, on Friday and we talked about this too. The Just remember as well, while the presidential election is obviously a huge part, you know, that happens every four years. Um, we Don't forget about everything going on locally because that may impact you even more in the immediate term than, than anything else going on, you know, nationwide. So just uh, be sure that that you're prepared to vote and and, and go do it. It's, it's a pretty awesome thing that we get to do. Um, and, and it matters. Even if you maybe feel like it doesn't, I, I promise it does. Um, it's a pretty cool thing. So um, unless you have anything else to add, I, I'm ready to, to kind of launch into this and tell the people what we're doing.
1: Yeah, get get the existential dread of whatever goes on the rest of this week out of the way and head into the fun thing.
0: Yeah, I, I purposely scheduled like a thousand podcasts this week so that I can just kind of keep the news on the back burner and <laughs> try and focus on things that uh, that are work related. But um, So Kayla and I are starting up a new series where we're going to be talking about um, some of the things that 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 we're looking for the team to either improve upon next year or we just have questions about in general on, um, you know, what it'll look like, how, how they can how, how they can shift things and, um, you know, just kind of how this team reaches the next step. Um, so in, in, in looking ahead and, and kind of, you know, moving towards uh, some of our questions. Do you want to go first? Do you want me to go first? Because I know we have we have two each and we're gonna go back off one another.
1: Um I can go ahead and go. All right, I awesome. can do mine. And I will so, also
0: say for everyone, we do not have any idea what either of us are 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 going to bring up. So this is going to be off the cuff.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, totally surprised here. Um I did tell Mark beforehand that we're gonna go ahead and title this. Two questions, too hot in honor of the Pacers and their last two minutes. We we need things that are named after numerical stuff. So, we already had the one where we did the player reviews. Now we have two questions. So, <laughs> the first one being my first question that I will put to the table here is the Pacers obviously were not a good rebounding team in the bubble. They really weren't a good rebounding team for most of last season, but they had. Um, The worst opponent offensive rebounding rate in in the eight seeding games. And then that came back to bite them a little bit in the the playoffs as well when the Heat started racking up offensive rebounds and second chance opportunities, particularly in game four. So what do we think about everything that Nate Bjorkren said last week and where the roster currently stands? It seems like the roster is probably going to continue to stand where it currently is. Mm -hmm. Um, And what we might see as some solutions for that issue.
0: That's a great question. Um, Yeah, I I fully agree. I think we saw in the bubble just how reliant this team was upon Demonis Sabonis to to pretty much do everything rebounding-wise. I mean, Miles, I think he averaged eight boards a game in the playoffs, but, um, I mean, the rebounding percentages were what they were. They were were ugly. Um, One thing that I'm really – interested to see and, and something that I note a lot. Um, I think TJ Warren might be one of the, the, the biggest aspects I look at, like his rebounding, his personal rebounding is pretty, pretty rough. I believe he's a bottom 10 percentile rebounder among forwards in the league. Um, And that's I mean, it's it's weird, too, because he's like top 10 percentile on the offensive glass among like we, wings and forwards for cleaning the glass. But on the defensive glass, he's, he's not great. And it's not that he's I, I sometimes people chalk it up to like effort or something like that. I don't really think it's an effort thing. I think he just gets kind of caught in no man's land sometimes between deciding whether or not he's going to chase the defensive rebound or box somebody out. And so then he ends up kind of killing two stones with one bird by not actually doing anything that's super productive and leaving his man partially open and not really going after the ball either. So I think he's one person I look at right away. Cause even in the bubble, he did not rebound that well. Uh, his numbers were like, okay, like in terms of pure like actual rebounds per game, but the percentages were still pretty, uh pretty poor. So I think he's the one I immediately look at with his size and his athletic ability. He's got to be a better rebounder next year.
1: Yeah. I think some of it with TJ is a lot of times last year, they looked at him and used him to kind of leak mm-hmm. out because he's so good in transition. And, and then it's kind of like, you know, which are you willing to sort of punt yeah. and, and risk that you might not get that rebound because you know, you're going to get an easy transition point. Um, to your point about miles, I will say, I mean, this my point was more about defensive rebounding. But when he was in the playoffs, he did a pretty decent job, I thought, against the Heat in a few of those games. Of you yeah. know, I, I have a small on me, and I'm pursuing the the offensive glass. Um, overall, in the bubble, you mentioned that about TJ, the number one person on the team in defensive rebounding, right? Was Victor. Yeah. So I, I wonder if some of this doesn't. Um, organically solve itself a little bit. Like, I I don't think they're suddenly going to become a good rebounding team, but if they can become closer to average, because Victor is um, a better rebounder than what Jeremy Lamb is. Jeremy gets caught. As you say, he doesn't, he doesn't win the battles on the perimeter that are waged to, to get rebounds on the glass. And it isn't mm-hmm. so much for him that he's leaking out in transition. Victor, they use more as the low man and he's one of the people they send there. So he did a pretty good job of smashing and he loops up and, and, and can tell with his speed, whether he thinks he can get there or, or needs to, you know, or if he's going to head the other way, if one of his teammates is going to grab it. So, and then like you said, if Sabonis is back, that obviously helps. And then two other small things I thought of in this regard is that, you know, um, I wouldn't say that it's going to be like a Dave Yeager situation and how the Kings generated some of their pace. They had a real running emphasis where mm-hmm. like if the center went out and contested a three, he was supposed to leak out and, and run the floor. I don't think that the Pacers are going to do that, but if you are playing faster in the half court and better managing your shot clock and you're getting more possessions, then it isn't as harmful if you're giving up offensive rebounds. If it, I mean, you have to be able to to balance that one way or another. And another thing that he mentioned is he said, I mean, Nate Bjorken said, I'm not going to have a set rotation from game to game. I'm going to coach every game as, as a separate entity. So if you are willing to go deeper into your bench and you know you're up against an opponent of, hey, you know, this team's a really good rebounding team, maybe you do uh, delve deeper and you're like, you know, we're going to play Alizé a few minutes tonight. I mean, I do think – I know in our prior podcast when we talked about Alizé – I mentioned that you know they didn't keep him in that game against the Bulls. They set him mm-hmm. up to Fort Wayne, but I think he might make a little bit more sense in a in a on a Bjorkren team than like a Mike D'Antoni team. So so maybe he gets some minutes and you see some stuff there. Um, but to counter all of those points I just made, if you are mixing in more zone, you're going to play three two. You're going to play triangle and two zone does leave you more vulnerable to giving up offensive rebounds. So yeah. You have to be vigilant of that. So, it's a little bit give or take, I think. But I did also look, and I'm not going to suggest that the Pacers, like, don't yell at me, Twitter or podcast (laughs) listeners. I'm not saying that the Pacers are going to be the LeBron Miami Heat. But I did, just for comparison's sake, to look at a team. The Heat in the 2012 season was a very bad defensive rebounding team. They were like – 29th and second chance points 28th and opponent offensive rebounding rate 26th and defensive rebounding rate. And the real telltale for them is they could give up all of that as long as they force turnovers at a different rate and they exchange threes for twos. So, like I said, it, it, if you're generating a little bit more pace and you're emphasizing the three point line a little bit more, you can get away with some of that dicey math more than you could last year when the pacers, you know, were dead last in three point attempts and were playing at a very sluggish rate. So some of it might organically solve itself and some of the things that they're trying to implement might exacerbate some of it. So we will see.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think the last thing I would hit on with that, it kind of comes down a little bit to what the team identity is. You know, I think you look at um, some of the late nineties teams, obviously, I mean, they were predominantly uh, half court offenses uh, that, that focused on, on controlling glass playing a little bit slower And slogging through every possession, which is a crude way to put it. I remember I talked to Chris Herring on a podcast about this when we talked about the Knicks and Pacers rivalry. And um, I remember like always thinking, oh, 90s basketball was gross because there was just a ton of um, nasty offense. But really like the stuff that Larry Brown did with the offense was kind of beautiful. Like, I mean, just tons of screens to get Reggie open because they had so little to work with offensively uh, other than Reggie. And so my point is like, when you look at this team in the in terms of rebounding, like like you're mentioning with with leaking out in transition and and, and getting out on the run, um, it just depends on what the team's identity is. And if you're caught in between two identities, I still I think that's worse than uh, not having something set that you're doing. And it not I, I know Nate talked about um, you know obviously being kind of fluid is the wrong way to put it, but you know in a in, in a sense you know like just kind of operating from game to game. But I think the biggest thing is just knowing what you're doing and selling out to do it and, and, and finding however that's going to happen because that's um, it felt at times last year, especially when you look at a guy like miles, um, his role just seems so undefined, at least to him. Um, and I think that it, obviously he figured that out a little bit later in the year before the bubble. Um, but I, I think that's, that's what I'm, that's what I'm kind of looking at with rebounding. I know that doesn't exactly solve everything, um, but it's, it's something to note in my opinion.
1: Right. I I think it too, it bears pointing out that like, I don't really care which player it is that leads this team in rebounding. Yeah. (laughs) I totally agree. Like like if you're a good rebounding team and miles is getting one rebound, I really like, I just don't care because some of that could be a function of your, I mean, so much of your rebounding is a function of what type of defensive scheme you're playing and who's going to get those rebounds. So, I mean, if they get better then I, like I said, I don't really care. But the fact is that like in the bubble, they were bad and, and, and Victor was leading you in defensive rebounding rate. So, but yeah, so we will see.
0: Yeah. Your yeah, question. So, your first yeah, of your oh, two. My first question. This is, I'm trying to pick between the two. It's, uh, it's exciting. I think, so they kind of feed into each other, but I'll start with, uh, I'll start with the first one. So this team lacks a true you know, one-on-one individual score. And I mean, you could look at a couple guys who, I mean, TJ can isolate a little bit, although his numbers actually aren't great in isolation. Uh, I mean, obviously Brogdon isolated a ton in the the bubble as a function of the offense. Victor used to be that guy to an extent. Um, And I think it's just interesting because you look at this team and I'd argue they're really talented, you know, one through nine, one through 10. They have really good talent. And that's not even, arguing. I mean, that's just true. They have really good talent, one through 10. Um, but they really lack that kind of top individual scoring threat, which is a, a lot of times what it comes down to in the playoffs. Um, obviously you can look at a lot of different things historically and, and some of the best Pacers teams have been like this, you know, having um, just a really great one through 10, they they thrive playing off of one another and having continuity. Um, but I, I wonder, uh, you know, how much do we weigh that, you know, like how important is it to not, not even how important is it to have that player, but, um, what does this team do to to reach high enough levels of offense that they can sustain in the playoffs without having a true one-on-one threat or someone like? I mean, you, I think it's easy to look at you know Kawhi when he was with the Raptors. The I think the one game against Philadelphia, he took 37 shots or something like that. Um, or pretty close. Um, so I think uh, again, it's like an arbitrary thing to break down, but I, it's something that that I, I think about a lot because I still don't think that there's a true Primary ball handler on the team, like both Victor and Malcolm, as we've talked about before. They're both really combo guards. Neither of them are, um, you know, guys that are true, like primary ball handlers, at least at the top level, um, in what they can do attacking the rim and, and kicking out for others. So I, I wonder your kind of thoughts on that.
1: No, yeah, I think that's a good point. Um, I think I would lean. I mean, it was kind of interesting when that whole presser happened because there was a lot of mm-hmm. emphasis on and on you know, changing defenses and changing defenses frequently that I touched on today. And, and it's it's like, okay. And I get where they're coming from. Like I buy into all that. I think it's important to be able to show teams other looks, but you're also at a point where in game four, it wasn't like the heat were, were, you know, loading up points against the Pacers. They had Jimmy Butler playing with like one arm could barely lift his arm above his head. They barely got to the line and they shot, pretty horrendously from three in that game and the Pacers couldn't muster enough points to win. So like, to me, what I'm looking at is, yeah, like you, they were still a top six defensive team, despite some of the the holes that they had. And I think it's important to be able to change and, and be able to do different things, but you know, where are the points coming from? So yeah, in Brogdon's numbers in isolation weren't bad in that series. Mm-hmm. It just became very predictable as to what yeah. they were, what they were going to do. And there was reasons why it lent itself to that. Um, during the regular season he his iso numbers were pretty good and obviously they had Sabonis who could uh create stuff some in the post uh, but yeah this is part why i'm not too i'm never going to be one who's too afraid of having uh multiple ball handlers like yeah. <laughs> that that doesn't that doesn't concern me like a three guard lineup that that doesn't bother me like we sometimes we question like you know there's there's too many ball dominant players or you know, and I use this in loose terms because sometimes the fit isn't great, but I mean, I mean, you look at OKC and not that they got out of the first round, but their three guard lineup was beneficial to them. It was beneficial to the Celtics that they had so many people that could do things off the dribble. Um, I think overall for the Pacers, I don't really know where that person's going to come from. I mean, if, if, they're wanting to re-sign Justin, which I think that there's a lot of reason to do that, then obviously that's what their roster is going to be. So you're going to have to look at hopefully getting internal improvement or like what um, Bjorkren said during the press so you're going to have to look at more weak side movement and other stuff that you can do within the existing roster where you're not having to score in isolation um, like we said a lot of times like even just against a switch there's other stuff you can run against switches that are within plays like slipping a flare screen or mm-hmm. slipping other run your same sets you just run them differently and there just wasn't a lot of that type of planning last year but I see your overall point that I don't really know who the person that you can point to on the roster and say, yeah, that guy is going to be, you know, a significantly better one-on-one player. Like, I mean, Aaron has some of that in his arsenal. I mean, we saw him square up LeBron and go to the basket. <laughs> yeah. Um, you, you can look at Malcolm. I mean, even Victor in his second season, before he got hurt, those numbers had dipped quite a bit from yeah. what, I mean, he was scoring about one close to one point. I believe per 100 during his all-star season in ISO, which is really good. And then that had dropped closer to, I think like 0.7 when I wrote something about that. So yeah, I mean, they don't really have a hero to play hero ball with at a high level.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And I think like, it's just, it it brings up a lot because I, I mean, you know, I just, in, in our talking about obviously we don't think that this team is going to be a championship team anytime soon, you know, but I do think that they're, the bones in place for them to be a second or, or maybe even conference finals team. Like, I think that's doable with this team. They have the talent that it could happen in two or three years. Um, but I, I think that you see so many more comparisons between them and a team. Like, obviously, I mean, this is one of the greatest teams of all time that, that didn't make a finals, but like the 2000 Blazers is something that I look at. Like, I mean, they essentially had two starting lineups, but same thing. You don't have anybody who's a true guy that you're, you're necessarily going to be able to get the ball last second. So I think, or even a better comparison would probably be like the 14, 15 Hawks, who are actually one of my favorite teams of all time. People always dunk on them for for not doing well in the playoffs. But then I also would point out, well, Paul Millsap was the best player on a 61 team. So that's pretty cool. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. There's there's a lot of questions in it. And I think if if you're cool with it, we could actually go into my second question because it kind of feeds right off of that.
1: Oh, that's fine.
0: So Go for it what internal developments would elevate this team into the upper echelon of the conference? So like a top, top four, top three seed. Um, and, uh, you know, are they possible and how bullish are we on those things happening?
1: Oh, that's a big one. Yeah. Mm. Well, let's just look at, I mean, I think some of it's just going to start with with the blueprint. I mean, I I hesitate to say how much emphasis should be put on coaching, but in this Mm -hmm. case, like, if you're not going to change your roster, then it kind of needs to come from the coaching. Like, if you're going to run back mostly the same people, I mean, you can obviously hope that Victor's closer to being himself. But I think certainly if you look at the front court, um, if you get Miles and he's somebody that you're – emphasizing more at the three point line and he's actually hitting those shots at a greater clip. Um, I know, I mean, he hasn't shot so far in his career, shot at 36% for one season. He lifted his attempts this year and that number dipped closer to 34%. We've talked about it before, but how much is a defense paying attention to him when he isn't shooting the ball? And then is it worth it for him to be, to be running offense through him when Sabonis is on the floor, those types of things, like if he could, establish himself as a a higher volume three point threat and somebody who could hit from the corners at a high rate that changes stuff for them the same way. If, you know, Sabonis becomes just more of a willing shooter in general that Mm -hmm. opens up the game for him. I think it would open up a lot of stuff if, and Bjorken touched on this using multiple ball handlers, but just mixing up the screening combinations. I've talked about that before, but in Sabonis's case, like if he, if he starts putting the ball on the floor, more and being able to use, you know, a a fake handoff, or he can be the ball handler in sets that gives you more diversity of the types of things that you can run. And I think for TJ Warren, one thing that I would point out is his playmaking. Like we saw that he can run and do things on ball, but if he can develop into a little bit more of a passer, and I'm not saying that I need him to like be able to shift the, the pieces on the floor or be able to manipulate the corners or something like that. Like I'm not asking for that. But if he can hit the open man, if he draws an extra defender, that opens up more for them too. So I, I kind of look at those three, I think, a little bit. More, I know Brogdon touched on his jump interview the other day, something that we've all kind of pointed out many times, that if he's going to be the point guard and the primary ball handler, he's been working on being able to get an off the dribble three more consistently, be able to Mm -hmm. create his own shot. The three, that makes a difference for him and Victor. If he, if he can hit that as a somewhat consistent threat, because then Victor's not going to see as much attention at the nail, if he's a threat to be able to do that himself off the ball as well. So I look at those guys mainly. Who do you look at?
0: Yeah, no, I think that's a, a great point. I think one of the guys I look at is Aaron Holiday um, because I mean, obviously Jeremy uh, were, I, I'm not entirely sure how much his injury is going to affect me. He, he didn't have right. a game super predicated on athleticism, but still is a massive injury. Um, and it, he was kind of looked at the guy who was going to be the real, uh, the real six man on the team. And I think you look at Aaron and he has the qualities to be maybe, I don't want to say more impactful because that's a little bit reductive, but I mean, just in the fact that he's going to be—he's already a better playmaker than Jeremy. He can do a little bit more off the dribble for himself and creating for his teammates and running pick and roll. So I think if Aaron can develop into kind of like—I don't want to say a super six man, but in a way, like maybe a little bit of what Dennis Schroeder did this year, becoming somebody who can close games, um, being somebody who really is just kind of a starting caliber player, but is is playing off the bench and 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 can suffice in those minutes and just gets hot. I mean, we've seen what he can do when he is hot. I mean. I still, I always go back to that stretch in December when Malcolm was out and he was running the offense and he was incredibly efficient. He looked really good. Um, I think there's so much there with Aaron. And again, he's not even that young of a young player, Uh, but he's still, I mean, I think he grew a lot this year, especially in the bubble. And I think that's there for him, but it just depends how things shake out. And a lot too on, um, I don't want to say it's a crutch to use TJ McConnell because TJ McConnell is a really good player, but I think you get what I'm saying. Like um, how willing is Nate Bjorken going to be to maybe seed some of TJ McConnell's minutes to Aaron holiday and giving Aaron holiday the chance to, to get out and, and, and be the first point guard off the bench. Um, because I think, you know, at, once things shook out towards the end of the pre hiatus season, Aaron was the second guy off the bench behind TJ and was hardly getting playing time with, with Victor and Malcolm, both back in the lineup. So I think if he can develop his, his, his dribble a little bit more, and improving getting to the rim, maybe drawing some free throws, he could become that guy who um, who really is able to kind of bolster the second unit and also come in and just provide some instant offense, which the team des- definitely would could could use.
1: Yeah, and I think, I mean, not to contradict things that I said a question ago, but I think <laughs> that, that some, in some respects that's where some of the defensive adapters adaptability would help a player like that because we saw in the playoffs that you know he is an undersized combo guard like that's his reality so yeah um the heat got him against switches he got into early foul trouble in almost every one of those games he was fouling jay crowder because they were purposely hunting that and he was scrapping and clawing and, and not that, I mean, he was giving out effort. He's just going to get overwhelmed in those. Yeah, exactly. So if you can implement some different schemes and, and, and shield some of that, I think he becomes more playable than what we saw in that series. I mean, obviously the best ability is availability and he's not going to be super available if he's getting, you know, two fouls within the first couple minutes of the first quarter. So, I mean, I, I think that that could help him. But like, as you say, I mean, we both touched on that too. I think most people would agree. I think TJ McConnell did a lot of good things for the Pacers last year. And for the most part, they didn't have to make a major choice between the two of them Mm because unfortunately somebody was almost always injured. But um, Aaron does have the higher ceiling of the two of them. And if you want to go to a next level, as we say, then internal development is going to be important. So
0: Yeah, definitely. And then I think the last thing that I would add to um I think, I don't know, maybe it sounds crazy to ask Domas to do more, you know, like I I always like kind of halt myself like that, you know, like we talked about in the bubble with how, how well TJ played. And then we talked about, you know, looking at the Miami matchup and we're like, well, if TJ could do just a little bit more and we're like, I mean, he's like averaging like 25 points a game, shooting incredibly well from three, doing stuff off the dribble he'd never done before. Um, But again, the team still needs it. And I think I look at Domas and as good of an, like a great of an offensive player as he is I think something that 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 I look at a lot and think about is him becoming a more assertive uh scorer himself you know because he's really good as obviously an incredible role man great screen setter um can shoot pretty pretty darn well from mid-range uh but uh, like you mentioned earlier becoming a more willing shooter from three would would of course help the team but I think I look at He's very good at obviously attacking mismatches and and finding finding little ways to score. But I think if he can become more of a, not even in the post, like maybe in terms of facing up or doing more with the ball in his hands, just anything that he can do to become somebody who can draw fouls at a higher rate, I think it would be huge. Because I think he's the one guy on the team who, if he really was able to put an emphasis on it, he could draw fouls. Because so much of... You know, I used to think that, that TJ Warren could be that guy, but I think just his game is so predicated on, you know, scoring from eight to 12 feet and not uh, not really trying, like drawing contact, but also avoiding contact at the same time to get his shots off because that's his game. Um, but I think Domas has the ability to become someone who could really um, just impact a defense by becoming a more, uh, I don't want to say dominant on ball threat, but just a more, even more of an aggressive on ball threat and, and could sink things to the rim obviously he's capable of kicking things out and and getting the ball moving. But um, if he could do that, that, that would be phenomenal. And I I know we talked about, um, will he ever be an all-star again? And I think that's where it is for me. If he can become that more um, like a a more dominant on-ball threat, I hate saying the word dominant. It sounds like I'm about to say alpha male right after that. And I hate it, but um, you you get what I'm saying. But I, I think that's, that's kind of when I look at the cards for, for, how this team could really improve. Um, that's, that's one of the first things I think about.
1: Right. I, I think you could see some of that because obviously Toronto ran inverted pick and roll for mm-hmm. Pascal Siakam as a means to, to shed rim protectors at times. I mean, I touched on some of this in the Chris Finch article I wrote about the benefits of, you know, bucking analytics, or at least what the conventional view of what analytics are, that if you have Sabonis out on the perimeter and he has the ball in his hands and he's occupying that defender, then you're opening up shots for theoretically better shooters and 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 cutters to the basket versus, you know, if he – and I want to tread carefully because obviously anybody would be better adding an additional skill to their game. He would yeah. be a better player if he could shoot the three. But there's other ways to get around that where you might actually be getting better shots. And something I look at, it would be interesting to look at what Jokic's numbers are because in theory, like, I would venture a guess that the Nuggets are a better team when he's getting 10 assists versus when he's scoring 30 points.
0: Like, yeah, I think that's true. Uh, I like, remember I, Adam Mars has definitely talked about that on the DNVR podcast before. So I, like, I'm like, yeah, surprised. I
1: mean, I, I just think that if Sabonis, if, if he's making plays for your team and getting shots to other shooters and, and passing people open, plus that's a good indicator. I mean, if, assists aren't always a perfect measure in general, mm-hmm. but like if in order to get an assist, somebody had to make a shot. So if you looked at that stat and saw like, oh, he's averaging six assists a game, the Pacers are probably a better team if that's happening versus if his if his individual scoring inches up. But um, this actually blends right into my next question. And I apologize, Pacer Nation, for what <laughs> I'm about to ask, Uh-oh. but it, it has to be asked. Um, Just based on, I listened to pretty much, I think I've caught up on all of the interviews that Bjorkren's done. Mm -hmm. And I am just very confused about exactly how they plan on managing the Turner and Sabonis minutes, whether they're together or apart, because just using some of the context clues here, for one, I just want to bring this up that I know that he was directly asked about Ibaka and Gasol. Like that wasn't something that he just brought up himself they were asked, like, do you think that this can work because of what happened with Ibaka and Gasol in Toronto? And he said, well, certainly, like, this is something that's important in the playoffs. I actually have his direct quote. He says, they asked him if he if he thought that they could play together and, and looked at stuff that Ibaka and Gasol had done. And Bjorkren said, you sure can. And where that benefits the most is in the playoffs. When you get to the playoffs, you have to be able to play small. You have to be able to play big. You have to be able to mix things up. The best examples of doing that or the best example of getting better at that is during the regular season. As in, if you play them together during the regular season, then you're going to be prepared if you need to play that wrinkle during the playoffs. So my only issue with that is, is that I like pretty much everything Bjorkren said, like I agree for, with, from a general standpoint, but like we need to not act like Ibaka and Gasol are really comparable in this situation because the Raptors were not playing them together. Like, Barely at all they average like like let's exclude even this season because I think we can all agree that Marcus Stahl took somewhat of a step back like yeah. he's considering playing overseas, you know, whatnot. But even in 2018-19, when they went to the title, they played 31 minutes together after Gasol was traded there. They averaged 5.7 per game in the playoffs. 70% of those were against the Sixers for matchup reasons. So as Bjorkren says, like this is important in the playoffs. Sometimes you need to be able to play big. I agree with that. Clearly, like the Lakers, there was instances where it really benefited them to have uh, you know, Dwight Howard to guard Jokic some of the time. So Anthony mm. Davis didn't have to. But, you know, by the end of the time that they played the Heat, hmm, they were a lot better when they just played Anthony Davis at the five. But um, yeah. And so if you even just look at what the Pacers did the years before Sabonis was a starter, the two of them played 429 minutes together when Sabonis was coming off the bench in 2018 19. That's like 300 more minutes than Abaka and Gasol played. During the 2018-19 season, so like, where are all these minutes coming from? And people are like, well, I think that they're going to stagger them out more. Turner and and Sabonis already averaged more minutes apart last year than they did together. Like, solo Miles was uh, 9.6 minutes. Solo Sabonis is 14.7. So that's 24 minutes per game that they averaged playing the five by themselves versus together they averaged 19.8. So if you're staggering that even more, then that means each of them are playing less minutes because there's going to be fewer minutes to go around at the five. So are you really going to sell two guys that are on extensions, Sabonis just coming off an all-star season on, Hey, you know, we, we want to play you more separately. So you're going to have to accept playing less because I mean, later on in another interview, Bjork and he said, you're going to see them be very active together at, whether they're out there together at times or one at a time. Like, and I don't want to read too much into that, but like whether they're out there together at times. And he said that he's going to coach each game to be itself. So, I mean, I still think they're going to play minutes together. Obviously they're going to have to, but I I just don't know exactly how you're spreading this out, especially when he says things like he could see Miles Turner being a trigger man. Like we haven't seen that yet. It would be great if Miles could add that to his game, but you're not going to use Miles Turner as a trigger man. If your vision is to be playing he and Sabonis a lot of minutes together, like Miles being used as a trigger man is only going to happen if Sabonis is on the bench. So I I turn the table to you. How do you see these minutes shaking out?
0: That's a great point. Um, I think, I've thought a lot about that too, you know, uh, because he obviously, like you mentioned, he said that that they were they looking at staggering and, and playing them separately. I think the first thing I think Gasol and Ibaka are so different from Miles and Domas. Like you could see shades of it. Like Gasol can do some similar things in terms of like a post hub, um, but he, he shoots a lot more, obviously, um, does a lot less at the rim. Like, Uh, And I think that's part of what impacted Mike Conley a ton this year. I mean, Rudy Gobert is strictly a rim roller. Uh, He spent his entire career playing with Marc Gasol, who was like very seldom a rim roller. Um, And then you look at Ibaka. Ibaka is a much more willing and much better three-point shooter, frankly, than Miles is. So I think like the idealized version of Miles maybe could be Serge Ibaka. Like it sounds nice, but again, also Ibaka is like incredibly more fluid of an athlete than, than Miles is. Um, But Miles is definitely a better defender at this point. Um, But I think it's just so weird to compare the two. And uh, it's it's funny, like you mentioned about the staggering, because the whole point is that these guys can't really, like, of course, you can stagger them some minutes so that you don't really have to play a backup center too much or pay a backup center too much. But the point is, when you have $35 million committed in salary to two guys, you cannot stagger them. You cannot stagger them in a playoff series. If they're not closing games together, then what are we doing? Like, I think that's, it's a complete mismanagement of money. And that's not to throw like Kevin Pritchard or, or Nate Bjorken under the bus. But I think like at some point you have to look at it and say, okay, this is, we're misusing what we have. We can't make it fit. And we have to find something else to do because, and I'm just nervous that the Pacers are going to come to that realization, you know, 15 or 20 games into the season and maybe Miles has lost some of his value or something like that. I don't know. But I think it's just a really big gamble in my opinion. And I I, I just, I know that these people are much smarter basketball minds than I am, but I just think, I, I don't know. I keep coming back to, to that kind of same sentiment.
1: Right. And I, I, exactly. Like that's was going to be my next point, because I do think that and I've said this many times, I think that there's more that you could do with the two of them. Mm -hmm. I think that there's more horn sets. There's more role replace sets that you can run with both of them. And I think that Bjorkren will have some of those ideas because he had them in the G League level. Like I showed that in my article, but that also has somewhat of a limited ceiling. When you're running role replace with a four and a five, it becomes somewhat easy to switch that with, You're too bigs. Like once you've run it enough times, is my point. Mm -hmm. And and up in Toronto, like it was important. I think maybe some of the Mark Gasol comparison goes from that. Nick Nurse really relied on him, especially during the championship run, as being a guy who even before he got the ball, he knew where the ball needed to go. Like his passing and his playmaking was important to them. So maybe some of the chalk outline comes there, but like and I'm not saying automatically that this can't, like I'm not just panning it ahead of time, but as you say, like if you're going to be staggering them to this extent, then I have the same question. Like, what are we doing here? Like, because you can't be playing, paying each of them almost $20 million a piece. If they, if you can't be playing them like a significant portion of minutes together. Cause I mean, by comparison, like you was asked about Victor and, and, and Malcolm, like, do you see them playing a lot together? Do you see, you know, making sure that one of them's always on the floor at the same time. And he's like, oh, absolutely. They'll be out there together because they're both so dynamic and whatever. Like it wasn't so much, well, when they're out there together at times or, you know what yeah. I mean? Like just a little bit of nuance there, which is to say nothing of something that we haven't even brought up in this conversation is if if you're staggering them more then you've kind of wasted last year's draft pick because where's, exactly. Goga, where's Goga's minutes coming from? Exactly. Like, because, you know, this is a unique year, too, because for the second year in a row, Goga's not going to get a summer league. I and mean, we know that. We don't know what exactly the G League schedule is going to be like, or at least I haven't seen detailed information on that yet. And if it's a compressed season, then you're not going to be getting as much practice time either. So like if you're not finding him his minutes, I don't really know how his development is really going to come along. And maybe that's not your top priority. Like if you just think, you know, we're awesome, we're playing so well with two centers, then I guess you don't really care. But, and what you also say about what would happen to one or the other of their trade value, I think is this is like a unique moment in time too, where there's so few teams that have cap space that if teams want to get better, they need to do it via trade. So does that, you know, help what the pacer situation is? If they want to move a big, is the trade value ever probably going to be as high as it is right now? Especially when teams like I don't really agree with this standpoint, but you do see some arguments out there of like, well, we need to play bigger to match up with the Lakers. Like, I don't know that the trade value would ever be that high. And obviously, in today's article, I did pose some serious questions about the viability of switching some of these defenses with a 3-2 zone or a triangle and two and having two bigs on the floor and how much teams are going to go after the corners, because we already saw that last year when the Pacers were trying to play 3-2. Like, and again, I agree with Nate Bjorker and you need to be able to come out. I think in today's NBA with how good scorers are, you need to be able to show them different looks, but can you do that with the Pacers current starting five on the floor? Do you feel comfortable that you're going to be able to morph from one defense to the next? Like you don't have Pascal Siakam out there who can at one minute be in a full court press and be hard trapping the ball and be able to back up and it, Intercept an advance pass, like neither one of Miles Turner or Demontis Sabonis are doing that. Neither one of Miles Turner or Demontis Sabonis is going to close out to the three-point line like OG. So I I just don't see these things as completely comparable, and I'm very confused about how the minutes are going to shake out because I just don't think I think both of them are good enough that you can't look at either one of them and say we're going to stagger you more and therefore you're going to play less minutes than you did last year, like.
0: Yeah, exactly, because I, I believe, if I remember correctly, I think Miles played his least minutes last year, or it was close. Uh, only yeah, I think he was under 30. Half, right? Yeah, he was, he was under 30, 30. 30, and it's just, uh, I don't know, and especially like you're talking about with the zone. I mean, you look at a team like, I mean, Syracuse is the zone place. You know, that's that's how you know about it. instead of the good place, it's the zone place. But, um, I mean, they almost rarely have two bigs. It's always really rangy guys who can get out to the corners, and like we saw, it, again, it's a really easy one to paint, but you look at that the final bubble the final pre-bubble game against Boston was a prime example of why this team is going to struggle to play both of those guys in closing minutes against smaller teams like Boston or or how Toronto was playing towards the end of the, end of the year when um sometimes they were even going to Siakam at the five like um I just don't know how that how that happens defensively um but right i it's mean yeah, be that's really a good point
1: because Ibaka and Gasol played 10 minutes in the seven game series that Toronto played against uh boston exactly ten total minutes so yeah yeah i don't know i i would suspect like i mean it and you know it's give or take because you look at it and it's like if this is a quick turnaround season i understand the benefits of continuity Mm -hmm. because you you'll be able to return the same roster but are the pacers really going to have continuity because they're not playing the same system so you're going to be incorporating all these different schemes anyways so like I get that it would be hard to be moving players in and out, especially during the middle of a pandemic when, you know, the season could start a month from, you know, little, I mean, training camp would be opening like a month from today if if they start playing on Christmas. So I get it. It's just, I just think around the draft, I would be, I would be listening to what's out there. I'll just put it that way.
0: Yeah. But, so I actually have two things. I, w- I want to riff off this. I think this is, this is a really great point that you bring up Caitlin. Like, um, you look at just in terms of talking about continuity and and how this team might go. And and obviously you look at a team like uh, Miami and basically all the teams that made the conference finals, especially the conference, especially the finals teams um, maybe being at a little bit of a disadvantage to start the year. Uh, Danny Green was on a ringer podcast and talks about guys maybe not playing to start the year, which obviously that's just, that's one player saying that's who knows. Um, But like why does the continuity matter for the Pacers is kind of what I come to like, I think we – this team is not like uh, – even if they get like a continuity boost to start, you know, say, maybe the first 20 or 30 games of a 70-game season, it still comes down to the playoffs and, and what happens in the playoffs. And and a, you could immediately point to everything that happened with Nate McMillan. Nate McMillan was a really good coach because of the continuity. I mean, he, he did other things as well, but like they're in like – game-to-game consistency is what what really – the, the Pacers were able to thrive on, and it also why they f- weren't as good in the playoffs because they didn't have a backup plan. They had one way to play, and that was it. Um, so I think it, it's just kind of like without some significant change, then then with what is the point of the continuity necessarily in terms of that, you know, boosting the team to some other level? Um, uh, t- technically, I guess is kind of the the ideology there.
1: Yeah, I think that's an interesting conversation league wide like what how teams are going to see that like you know I would suspect that like Denver will return most of their same Mm -hmm. roster Um, because I mean their window is is pretty wide open with how young their their team is so like I don't think they're going to do something crazy and be like oh you know let's trade Michael Porter Jr. this summer and 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 take a big swing I think that they're going to buy into that development so you know a team like that maybe they can build off of what they just did and and they're going to be mostly doing the same types of things. Maybe they, you know, filter in some more schemes for like a Michael Porter jr to actually have sets that are run for him. But yeah, I mean, overall, most of these teams are going to have continuity when you think about it, because yeah. barely anybody has cap space. So like, is there that much of an advantage to be gained from that? I think that that's an interesting point. Did you ask both of, you asked both of your questions, correct? Yes, I did. Okay. Well then I might as well just throw out my reckless speculation one that I told you that I might ask if we had, um, multiple things. So I did notice, I don't know. Did you see Malcolm Brogdon on the jump last week?
0: I did not. I know he was on there, but I did not see it.
1: Yeah. So he talked about like some union stuff and then how he wanted to work on like off the dribble threes. And it was a, it was a good interview, but, um, he also mentioned in there that he had had lunch with Nate Bjorkran in Atlanta And the way that this was phrased, like here I'm getting out my big magnifying glass, (laughs) but he said when he was talking about having lunch with him, he said that Nate Bjorken was in Atlanta and we had lunch. So, like, I'm probably reading way too much into this, but um, that kind of sounds to me like. Nate Bjorken had other business in Atlanta in addition to, and was like, I'm going to go eat lunch with Malcolm Brogdon and get to know my new point guard. So I'm just wondering like, were the Pacers potentially looking at draft prospects in Atlanta? Because I know that some teams have traveled out there to see a few guys who are predominantly um, in the Atlanta area. So my question to you is, have I read way too much into a pointless jump interview?
0: <laughs> uh, don't we all? Um, wow. No, I I don't know. Maybe. Um, I'm not sure it's 2020. Like <laughs> I have no idea what to think anymore with all the things that have happened this year and seem to be on the cusp of happening. Um, but that actually leads me into a, a, a similar point. Like, um, I'm, I'm really trying to dive into the, to, to the draft in terms of how the paces are going to look at it and, and what they should be doing. And I think this is like, I, I don't want to go too, too far into it. because I'm, I've, I've started an outline on, on, on writing for this, I already promised people I would write it. So I do have to write it now. Um, But I think the last kind of straw is the wrong way to put it. Last uh, kind of last notch in the belt that this this organization needs is the ability to draft and develop well. Uh, and, And I mean, we hit on it a little bit with Goga. But just having that kind of streamlined approach to being able to, okay, we're drafting this guy because he's going to do this for us. And I know there's obviously something about, you know, you're not supposed to draft for fit and all that just drafting talent. Um, But uh, you look at some of the great organizations that are maybe smaller markets or weren't a a Los Angeles or Miami or Boston. um, And I'm sure some Boston fan will tell me that they're a small market or something because nobody wants to go there in free agency, but no. Um, but, I mean, you look at what San Antonio did in their, like, 10, 15-year run. They did not miss second-round draft picks. They did not miss bottom-of-the-first-round draft picks. And I think this is not an indictment of Kevin Pritchard necessarily, but I think um, that, that's what I'm really looking for. And I th- obviously, it's only the 54th pick, but you look at it, and it's like, okay, well, this 54th pick could be the difference between having to pay someone to to provide um, you know, a 7th or 8th-man role on the MLE or part of the MLE or you get a guy with pick 54 who in a year or two is that seventh or eighth man and he's on a rookie scale deal contributing for you. And I think that's, that's what really separates the Pacers from being an A-class organization um, in terms of being competitive every year because they're, they're great at bringing in, um, you know, great at making trades that benefit the team uh, great at really finding personnel who fit the roster. But uh, until it happens through the draft, I just don't know necessarily where the Pacers are going uh, with their future.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think that the draft has been, you know, it was, I will say this, it was a little bit painful when I wrote the Raptors article watching OG. <laughs> uh, of course. <laughs> um, that He's Obviously, so there's other teams that, um, you know, somewhat it's like it feels a little bit, uh, piling on to look at like, oh, the Pacers took TJ Leaf and they could have taken OG. Well, there were other teams that could have taken him as well. But mm-hmm. um yeah, I mean, I think that your point is sound. And I do wonder in like this current climate with the draft in general, like how does a team like the Pacers who do, don't even have a first round pick are like, are they getting meetings with any, like, like let's just. This is completely hypothetical. Again, podcast listeners, like, I don't have any <laughs> sources on this. I'm just riffing off of an yourself idea. on a clutch
0: points, uh, clutch points graphic, <laughs>
1: exactly. <soon. laughs> um, but like, speaking of that, like, are the pacers going to be able to get like. Let's pretend on draft night that they are interested in moving one of the bigs or Victor or you know something comes something happens that just blows them away and they manage to get a first round draft pick in return of some sort of package. Like would they have gotten sit-downs with any of the potential first round picks as a team that doesn't have one? Like what types of players are they getting meetings with because obviously there's a limit in how many prospects you can meet. So if you don't even have a pick like are are those types of players I mean, obviously, most of them probably aren't working out in the Indianapolis area, which is why I brought up my completely unsourced speculation about whether they would have gone to Atlanta to see some of the players that I know that are working out there. Like, are they getting in the room with those guys? Like, obviously, the value of scouting and film study, this is the longest any team's had to to review all of that. But it just feels like it would be even harder for the Pacers this year, if that's something that they got in a package, to make a pick.
0: Yeah. No, I think that's a great point. And it, I, I would even counter that too. Like I was talking with uh, Tony Easton, Alex Holden about this on a podcast, uh, I think it was last week. Um, I kind of, I, I don't know. I mean, I guess it depends, you know, kind of who, who you're picking or or, or what you're doing and the state of the team. But I, I, you know, I see a lot of ideas get thrown around about this team trading for like the number two pick. I think that's a really popular popular one, and I, I'm never really a huge fan of that because then you'd have to take on Andrew Wiggins' contract, and it's almost never a fair trade. Um, but, like, w- this team isn't really in a place to develop a second overall pick, in my opinion, unless it's, like, someone who you're drafting to be a, a, an extremely high-end supplemental player, but then you could also argue, then why are you taking him with the number two pick? Um but I, I think, you know, you have T.J. Warren's 27, uh, Malcolm Brogdon's 28. Uh, Domas is like the youngest real core player on the roster, and he's 24 already. If you're drafting somebody in, you know, top five, even, you know, top eight, he's probably, you know, 20, 19, 20. Um, and just how does that guy really even fit in? Because like, most of those guys that are coming in, they're uh, like they've, they've been primary scorers their whole career. They've been the guy with the ball for their entire existence as a basketball player with, with, you know, uh, some exceptions of course. Um, But then, you know, how much does that actually benefit you if you're spending, you know, all that time trying to develop this guy to become that, the that guy on your roster, but he he doesn't really fit the mold of everyone else who's there.
1: Right And maybe maybe some of that parlays into what type of a draft it is. Like obviously, I don't do draft coverage, but people who are much smarter than me that do don't seem to think a lot about this particular draft class. Mm-hmm. but like let's pretend it was a stronger one and the situation were the same. Maybe you would be willing to pull the trigger on that type of a deal just because you may never get a, like, how are the pacers going to get somebody to that degree of talent? in any other means like even if the person isn't on the same timeline as the pacers you probably just would do it like let's let's look at like the Sixers getting Ben Simmons like if you could get somebody that caliber when else are the pacers like you're not signing somebody that caliber in free agency you're going to have a hard time getting somebody that caliber in a a trade so you might be willing to pull the trigger just because you're like you know that guy's going to be better than than our other means of talent acquisition even if it doesn't fit the timeline of the other players but i mean i don't know i don't really you know I think that miles Turner could be a fit for a team like golden state in a lot of different ways. But like, I don't know that I think that golden state would be like, yeah, we're going to give up the number two pick for that. Like, I don't know, maybe they will, but
0: no, anyways, we've,
1: we've gone far off topic here, but (laughs) (laughs) we're past our two question limit.
0: Well, Caitlin, this was fun. We are, we're definitely going to have another one coming up soon. Um, What's uh, what's new and exciting in your, your life right now that you're, uh, that you're happy about?
1: Um. Yeah. In general, it's kind of interesting. Like I was thinking the other day, there used to be things to say on podcasts. Anecdotes (laughs) about life. Like we used to have like life anecdotes. Yeah. And now it feels like our anecdotes, I should say. Um. Now it feels like my big anecdote is like, well, today I got a little extra sleep.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I stepped outside Uh, with uh without a mask on for a minute to take my dog out. Like I don't know. Yeah. It's uh 2020. Good I do self. have
1: one project that's kind of looming towards the back end of the week with somebody from another site. So we'll see if that goes off or not, but that's something to look out for that would be Pacer related. So
0: Awesome. I'll be looking forward to that. Um, to, again, to everyone, if you haven't already, please be sure to go read Caitlin's article. Um, also, if you have not already, please be sure to rate and review the Indy Corn Rose podcast on Apple Podcasts. Obviously, subscribe anywhere else you can. And of course, read us at com. Uh, Be sure to shoot us any questions, comments, thoughts, feedback that you have uh, either there or on Twitter. And uh, most importantly, just have a good rest of your day. And of course, like we talked about at the beginning, go vote. Have a good rest of your day and go Pacers.